From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Charlotte Thomason. And I'm Elizabeth Dowdell. And we'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news. This week, Terra Informer Hannah Cunningham will take us on a deep dive into a recent World Wildlife Foundation report on how much land is needed to conserve at-risk species and how Canada has been handling the challenge. Because she is such an incredible human, we will also hear Hannah interviewing University of Alberta professor and Moss boss, Dr. Renee Belland, about unique endangered species. Lastly, we will revisit an archive from 2010, a story involving a massive sale of 16,000 acres of crown grasslands to private developers, colloquially known as Potato Gate. The sale tried to be secretive, but was unearthed by engaged citizens and the media, who responded with fury. Did the land sale go through? Stay tuned to find out. This week, we're inspired by the recent World Wildlife Foundation assessment and report on conservation lands in Canada, which asks, How much is enough? Here, Terra Informer Hannah Cunningham with a lowdown on the report. Are Canada's ecosystems, habitats, and wildlife well protected? Does the Government of Canada's commitment to protecting wildlife and biodiversity by conserving 17% of its land and fresh water by the year 2020 hold up? These are the kinds of questions that a report recently released by the World Wildlife Fund attempts to answer. The report is titled, Wildlife Protection Assessment, a National Habitat Crisis. It explains and maps out key ecological gaps in Canada's existing protected area network while highlighting places that should be considered high-priority areas for protection. So what are some of the factors that the World Wildlife Fund consider as indicators of an area that needs protecting? The presence of species that are considered at risk under COSIWIC, or the Committee on the Status of Endangered Wildlife in Canada, is a big one. Others include areas with high forest biomass that can assist in capturing carbon, as well as habitat areas with carbon-rich soils or peat bogs present. The report suggests that the protection of areas rich in carbon will ensure that less is emitted into the atmosphere through land conversion. Lastly, areas with unique climate conditions should also be protected, as they act as spaces of refuge for wildlife species that are threatened by climate change-driven habitat loss. While the report does briefly mention the importance that protected areas play in conserving social values as well as Indigenous history and culture, it is mainly focused on highlighting the importance of these areas for the conservation of biodiversity and ecosystem services. So, we know that the Government of Canada has committed to protecting 17% of the country's land and fresh water by 2020 under the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity. But how do we know that that 17% is a quality 17%? or the right 17%. Size isn't everything, and not all protected areas are created equal. Here are four things that the report lists as factors that are important to consider when creating or assessing a protected area. Number one, 
Okay, so size is important, but it's not everything. Big areas of protection are good if they are continuous and ensure enough physical space for the wildlife to properly utilize the habitat. Number two, freshwater coverage is important. Don't just stop the protection at the shoreline. Number three, different levels of elevation provide different habitats and ecosystem services and should also be considered. And number four, like the first point, intact and connected spaces are important for wildlife that move around and between different types of habitats. So now that we know a little bit more about what choosing a good protected area looks like, we can take a look at how Canada's current protected area network holds up. Turns out, not so well. According to this report, Canada has 6,430 different physical habitats, and 76% of them are inadequately protected or not protected at all. Also, Canada is currently lagging behind the international target to protect 17% of land and fresh water by 2020. The Northwest Territories, Nunavut, and Newfoundland and Labrador have the least protection, according to this report. Additionally, Alberta, the Grasslands, Southern Ontario, Southern Quebec, and New Brunswick have a lack of ecological representation, meaning that there is a lack of representation of a full range of physical habitats within their protected areas. Some of the main gaps in the current habitat protection network identified by this report include the inadequate space that Canada's protected areas provide for the maintenance of biodiversity, the lack of protection of areas that allow for the amount of movement that some species require, and the lack of protection that the current network provides for freshwater systems and wildlife. This national assessment of habitat and protected areas conducted by the World Wildlife Fund contains a lot of information, including a rundown of the important ecosystem and habitat types for each province and territory, as well as some high-priority considerations for new protected spaces. For a link to the World Wildlife Fund's website on this report, as well as the summary document, visit our website at terrainforma.ca. Thanks for that, Hannah. Now, much of the discussion about conservation and critical habitat focuses on what are referred to as large charismatic megafauna, meaning those big iconic species like polar bears, grizzlies, caribou, orcas, or whales. While these species may be keystones in an ecological perspective, other organisms like trees, mosses, even snails can also face critical challenges to their survival due to limited habitat. To get some perspective on these less charismatic, but no less at-risk species, Terra Informer Hannah Cunningham reached out to the University of Alberta professor and species at-risk specialist, Dr. Renee Belland. Here's that story. I'm Renee Belland. I'm a faculty member in the Department of Renewable Resources in Ag uh, Agriculture, Life and Environmental Sciences. And I teach two courses, one on endangered species and a second one on moss identification in uh, for Alberta. We're looking to sort of get an idea about some of the different species at risk and some of the certain habitat requirements that they that they need. Because I know a lot of people are familiar with lots of the sort of big mammals and some of their their habitat characteristics, but there's a lot of there's a lot of species on that on that list of endangered species. So we're looking for some of the ones that people not, might not know so much about. And seeing as you are a moss expert, <laughs> yeah, if you had any species that you'd be interested in talking about, and um, yeah, just some some of their specific habitat requirements. 
Okay. Uh, actually, th th what we'll start with first, I think, is just talking very quickly about the kinds of habitat that is actually protected in law. And um, at the national level and both and at, at some of the provincial level as well. So at the federal layer level, endangered species are protected by the Species at Risk Act. And in the Species at Risk Act, the way that the species are protected specifically is by defining something called critical habitat. And critical habitat is defined as the uh, habitat that is required in order to, um, in essence, save the species to uh, ensure that it, it's, uh, its continued presence on, on the landscape. So defining critical habitat really varies a lot with the kind of organism and the biology of the organism itself. So if we were going to talk about, say, something like um, caribou, Mm -hmm. Caribou requires a lot of habitat and a lot of it has to be critical habitat. So you end up with, with uh, very large landscape areas that become critical habitat for all kinds of things, for uh, breeding and feeding and, uh, and migration, et cetera, et cetera. The same goes with some kinds of birds and some other large mammals. When we talk about some of the other critters, and um, mosses are one of them, and lichens are another, and vascular plants would do the same, and some of the insects and slugs and things like that. They don't move a whole lot, so when it comes to defining critical habitat for them, it's usually a fairly small area. In, uh, in Alberta, we have two endangered mosses, or two mosses that are, that are listed as at risk and are protected under the Species at Risk Act. Both of them don't occupy very large habitats. And, and the reason for that is, of course, these species are, well, they're, they're mosses, so they're very small. They also have very specific kinds of habitats. So the two mosses are something called Haler's apple moss, and the second one is Porcel's bryum. Both of them are restricted to the mountains. Uh, Haler's apple moss is also found in British Columbia, uh, but it's, it's known in Alberta just from Jasper National Park. And then the other one, Porcel's bryum, is actually um, mostly in, in Alberta, it's found in the front ranges of the Rockies. So uh, some of the areas would be south of Hinton, for instance, around Cardinal Divide and Whitehorse Wildlands Park, and then further north in um, uh, Wilmore Wilderness. But it's also found in BC and some other, other places. Haler's apple moss is really specific in its habitat. It requires um, really shaded areas that remain, uh, that have a fairly high, well, that remain cool throughout the summer and that have a high humidity. It also grows on a really specific substrate, so that substrate has to be a, a cliff, it has to be pretty much bare rock, mm -hmm. and it needs something called siliceous, uh, a siliceous substrate. So the, the rock has to have a lot of silica in it, and therefore it, it has some. Um, it has a fairly low pH. Um, so that's fairly specific. Uh, cliffs, most of the cliffs that the species grow on are not these gigantically huge cliffs that you see when you first enter the Rocky Mountains. They're just little, usually forested cliffs. So when it comes to defining critical habitat for them, it's usually fairly easy. We, the, the species doesn't move much because it's a moss, so we just preserve the cliff itself that the species is on, plus a buffer to make sure we can protect the, the microenvironment of that cliff. Uh, one of the things that is a real interest for us as, as uh, moss people, and you find it also for other critters, 
living things, plants uh, in general, is that species that, um, like Hehler's apple moss, can be affected by something called edge effects. So, for instance, if a species grows in a very specific spot in a forest, that forest will help create the environment, the microenvironment, microclimate for the species in that forest. But if you create an edge by fairly close by, by, by logging, for instance, or clearing land, it can actually change the microhabitat of the species that is growing in that forest. And so you need a fairly large buffer. Uh, often it's, it can be, the buffer should be, it depends a lot on the height of the trees, the slope, the aspect, et cetera. But we often need a, a buffer of about 100 meters so that if you do log close to that species or the, it's the, you know, the, um, the habitat is, or the forest is removed, then there's no effect on, on the species itself. So the, the habitat, even though it's really specific on a particular kind of cliff, um, you still need to have a, a buffer. So that's the one. Um, that's Haler's apple moss. The other species is Porcel's brine, which seems to be a little bit more common in Alberta. It's also found on cliffs, but it doesn't like the silicious ones. It likes the calcareous ones. So these usually have a higher pH. So limestone um, is, uh, or limestone or calcareous uh, conglomerates are one of the rocks, but it too likes to have really shaded areas. And even more so, it likes to grow on cliffs where there is almost continuous seepage. So you get a little bit of a trickle of water so that there's a continuous, uh, continuous water um, for, for that moss. So we often find it um, on, on cliffs, again, that are really well shaded, usually by trees or in somewhat little cavities or caverns or whatever, uh, or large crevices. Um, but there has to be that seepage to keep the humidity up and for the moss to actually to survive. So it, it's, it's fairly specific. So when we define, we, we know that the habitat for this species is, is very uh, circumscribed. You know, basically these very specific, um, these very st specific environmental criteria. But if you're going to protect it, you still need to have that critical habitat, uh, such that we have a big buffer between the cliff itself and the um, any edges that might be created by our our activities. This is Hannah Cunningham popping back in with an important message from Dr. Belland, um, and that message is that all mosses are extremely charismatic. Okay, thanks, bye. That was Tara Informer, Hannah Cunningham, talking to the U of A professor, Dr. Renee Belland, moss boss and species at risk specialist. To learn more about the mosses that are Renee's passion and to see the moss boss in action, we've included an excellent three minute video from the Alberta Biodiversity Monitoring Institute on our website about the recovery of an endangered species of green, cushy, water-loving moss named Porcid's Bryum that lives in the Whitehorse Wildland Park in Alberta's Rocky Mountains. Threats to land and the endangered species that depend on it are not a new topic in Alberta. No matter how much some things change, they stay the same. And every few years, 
a new parcel of land comes under the hungry eyes of a potential development deal. Or, in the best case scenario, in celebration as a new protected area. Either way, endangered species are usually involved. We're now going to take a look back at an archive from 2010 detailing a secret attempt to sell off and transform a 6,500-hectare parcel of public native prairie grasslands in southwestern Alberta into an irrigated potato farm. Tara and former Alex Hindle sets the scene, while Ian McKenzie interviews Alberta Wildlife Association conservation specialist Carolyn Campbell. In the fall of 2010, the province of Alberta's Sustainable Resource Development Ministry was criticized by media and public interest groups for what was seen as a secret attempt to sell off public lands. The sale was to be made directly to a single company interested in converting a 6,500-hectare parcel of native prairie grasslands in southwestern Alberta into an irrigated potato farm. Amidst the public outcry, the company, SLM Spud Farms, withdrew from the deal. Now a year later, in the fall of 2011, the ministry, led by Minister Mel Knight, is trying once again to sell the land to intensive agricultural interests, this time through an open bidding process. The land is currently habitat for several species at risk, is itself a rare ecosystem, and is actively used as grazing land by several cattle ranchers. To find out more about this story, Terran former reporter Ian McKenzie speaks to Alberta Wilderness Association's conservation specialist, Carolyn Campbell. Alberta Wilderness Association has been concerned for for many years about the secretive nature of public land sales and how there isn't an opportunity for the public to uh, be involved in discussing what should happen to these public lands. And it's very strange that the government uh, seems so intent on selling this land for so little benefit except presumably to one producer and so much cost environmentally. I am speaking with Carolyn Campbell, a conservation specialist with the Alberta Wilderness Association. We are talking about the government of Alberta's announcement that a large area of public rangelands, which include native prairie grasslands, are for sale to persons interested in converting the land to irrigated crop use. The parcel in question is north of the community of Bow Island in southeastern Alberta, about 50 kilometers west of Medicine Hat. People may be interested to know that as recently as last summer, there were two active burrowing owl nests there. There's also North America's largest soaring hawk. is called the ferruginous hawk, and there's an active nest on that land. And a survey found many pairs of North America's largest shorebird there, and that's a species of special concern. Uh, it's called the long-billed curlew. The other interesting thing we know about this piece of land is that female pronghorn antelope use it as a fawning ground, and that means that they can conceal baby antelope in the native vegetation there, but still maintain some distance from the young antelope. Tell me more about what's, so, what's specifically happening right now, and then uh, so maybe sure. give some of the history. Yes. Um, so on August 30th of this year, the Alberta government posted a request for proposal. What they've done is they've allowed two months' time frame for interested bidders to bid on a purchase price for this land. It's being sold in one parcel, and it's a really large area of land. It's 25 sections, or about 65 square kilometers, and it's being 
referred to in this proposal as irrigation land. So the purpose of this land is to be agriculture, including irrigation. And there are a number of requirements in the proposal to demonstrate your financial strength, to demonstrate how you will compensate the grazers, to demonstrate the benefits, uh, economic benefits of this. There's a uh, very slim checklist uh, that you acknowledge the environmental problems and that you will develop a plan to manage or reduce environmental impacts, but that's given very low rating in the overall package. It is a piece of land that has been managed as a grazing lease or leases, actually, and it's been managed in such a way that the value of that habitat is good for grazing cattle as well as for protecting endangered species on why is the government selling this land? Are they hard up for cash? Is this That's a typical thing? That's a very thing? good question because there has been such a widespread public opposition to it. The frustrating thing and the baffling thing about this is this exact same piece of land was in question last autumn. We learned that the cabinet was about to approve the secret sale of this land to one buyer, a potato farmer who would uh, convert it to irrigated lands for growing potatoes. And there was such a strong public outcry on that that the buyer decided to withdraw the proposed sale. So the criticism last year came from environmental groups such as us, but also from grazers, from cattle associations, from the Fish and Game Association, which is a broad group of hunters and fishing folks. It came even from potato growers themselves that said at this point they don't need more capacity and the government would be better to have more uh, production from existing lands. Are there any legal requirements at this time as far as protocol around the selling of public lands by government? Well, Alberta Wilderness Association has been pushing actually for some years to have a more transparent process. Right now, the tradition in Alberta, which is not democratic and certainly not very modern, is that cabinet can authorize sales of public land for agricultural purposes without public scrutiny. The biggest issue is that the government's going against its own responsibilities and obligations to endangered species and generally to species biodiversity to protect remaining native grasslands. It's gone against the recommendations of its own appointed advisory council for the South Saskatchewan region that strongly recommended no more conversion of native public rangelands. It, it is somewhat more public in the sense that they've posted it on a website and they're inviting more bids, but it is not more public in the sense that they have not followed the wishes of the public and there's no way to involve the public in a discussion about what, what should happen with this land. They've decided that. Mel Knight, the Sustainable Resource Development Minister, one of the rationales he gave that this would be good for conservation was that significant funds from the sales would go to conservation. What is your uh, view on that? Well, it's, it's a very dubious statement. Last time, Minister Knight was caught out uh, saying that they had already made arrangements with the Nature Conservancy to offset any impacts from this land sale. And that just turned out to be totally unfounded. This time around, he's making a statement that, again, doesn't really stand up to scrutiny because he's, he is saying that the government of Alberta is going to promote the destruction of 65 square kilometers of native grassland, and they haven't offered any proof 
whatsoever of which lands they're proposing to uh, either transform or or restore or save in any in any specific location. So so there's no proof of that whatsoever. I think it's just wishful thinking to try to calm public concern about it. I suspect a response might be that they've set up this conservation fund that would match any funds that a conservation group could bring together. Right. There, there is a fund that is, I understand, Government of Alberta funds from the sale of public land. In general, part of that money goes into support the work of land trusts and other conservation groups. So it's a false economy. It's a very poor use of the hard-earned money that these other conservation trust groups raise to destroy native grassland that's already owned by the public and that already is doing its job in terms of both an economic use for grazing and endangered species use. Their their hard-earned funds that they're raising should go to motivating private landowners to be very good conservation stewards through easements or, or other covenants, other binding agreements, or to, say, buying land that they would manage on their own. That option isn't going to happen in this case. We're, we're going to lose what we know is already good land. And it will, in fact, if the government does try to use some of those funds, it will divert what should have been directed to private land restoration and better management. So it, either way, we're going to be behind and worse off from where we are now environmentally. I was speaking with Carolyn Campbell, a conservation specialist with the Alberta Wilderness Association. We were talking about the government of Alberta's announcement that a large area of public rangelands, which include native prairie grasslands, are for sale to persons interested in converting the land to irrigated crop use. The parcel in question is north of the community of Bow Island in southeastern Alberta, about 50 kilometers west of Medicine Hat. Proposals for bids on the land are being accepted until October 31, 2011. You can find out more about this story, including web links to related information, on the Terra Informa webpage at terrainforma.ca. I'm Ian McKenzie. Thank you for listening to our program. was an archive from Terra Informa in 2010, where Ian McKenzie interviewed Alberta Wildlife Association conservation specialist Carolyn Campbell about an attempted sale of native prairie grasslands. Personally, we were quite inspired to hear that Potato Gate was foiled by citizens who organized and utilized community to keep land and species safe. We shared this piece to remind you that Crown land in Alberta belongs to all citizens, and we have the duty and power to protect it. To learn more about the history of public land sales in our province, you can find a link to the Alberta Wilderness Association on our website. That's all for this week. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, located in Edmonton, Alberta, on Treaty 6, the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples who continue to live and gather here and who continue to influence the stories we make and our understanding of the land around us. We believe treaty acknowledgements are important, not just because they are increasingly becoming a politically correct box to check, but because treaties are living documents that contain promises to Native peoples about these Native lands. 
promises that have repeatedly been broken by Canada. We encourage you to learn more and consider the purpose and intent the next time you hear a treaty acknowledgement. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to send us an email to tara at cjsr.com or tweet at terrainforma. To catch up on the latest environmental news, visit our website at terrainforma.ca. Thank you to our volunteers who created this week's episode, Dylan Hall and the infatigable Hannah Cunningham. We've been your hosts, Elizabeth Dowdell and Charlotte Thomason. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you'll catch us next week right here on Terra Informa.